Thanks for joining us, Robin, Ivy. Uh, I'm super excited to be able to have this conversation with y'all, and I appreciate you making time in your tremendously busy schedules to make this happen. So, you know, in previous episodes, we'd mentioned that we feel like as a field, we're at a crossroads. Uh, and this idea that we have we have choices as to the direction that we're going to go as a field in terms of the types of approaches that uh, we want to use to serve individuals with challenging behavior. And, uh, you know, ABAI is now over and we're all back and, and into the into the rhythm. But we still have a couple more episodes that we wanted to, to shoot in the spirit of continuing this conversation regarding what we might consider, many might consider more sustainable approaches to serving individuals with severe challenging behavior. So Ivy and I were on a panel together. And during that panel, you know, she referenced numerous times the, our, the need for us to be more innovative as a field. And so I thought it would be a really wonderful thing to be able to talk with both of y'all about the work that you're doing at the May Institute and those those innovative approaches and, and changes that y'all are making to uh, to what you're doing at, at the May Institute. So I'd love if y'all could just introduce yourselves and then we'll kind of transition to talking about the work that, that y'all are doing and uh, and how we could learn from what, what you're doing at the May Institute currently. So uh, Robin, I'll let you start in terms of uh, introducing yourself. Sure. Um, I'm Robin Landa. Um, I'm my current role at the May Institute. I've been there, I think, three to four years. Um, time flies with COVID. Um, my current role is Director of Clinical Services and Training for the May Institute. And my name is Ivy Chong. Um, I've been with the May Institute since the fall of 2017, so about five years. My current role is the Senior Vice President of Children's Services. And in that role, I oversee the operational side of homeschool center-based as well as one of our private schools, Wilmington School. In that role, I look at you know systems organization and processes and how essentially to do things more efficiently and how we can make an impact um, with the individuals that we work with. Yeah. How do y'all work together? Like what's your, what's your relationship like working with one another? How often do you get to collaborate or, or do you not work together much? Like, what does that look like? I, I don't get to work with Ivy as much as I would like to, but I know that we have a pretty small um, team, um, clinical services and training team. And my mentor, um, Dr. Alice Schillingsberg works really closely with Ivy. So we work together more indirectly, um, at least on my end. Uh, I would I would quit my job to work with with Ivy uh, more uh, more often. So yeah, Ivy Ivy's like a legend in my mind. I, I like I've really enjoyed getting to. I wish I could see your camera right now, Ivy, because I hope that you're blushing from all of my from all of my. You're praise. making me blush. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, sweet. All right. Well, let's. Thank let's, you. I appreciate. Yeah. Oh, of course. Um, Robin, you and I had a, a chance to briefly connect yesterday, and I think we had a really fruitful conversation. So uh, I would love to just learn more about some of the projects that y'all are working on at the May Institute. And uh, so I'll let you kind of kick off the conversation and it can go in any direction that we want it to. So, and Ivy, please, uh, as we're having the conversation, just uh, weigh in as, as, you, as, you feel, uh, as you feel the need to kind of share more context about systems and culture change and all the amazing things that I know that y'all are doing. Absolutely, thank you. Um, so currently um, in my role, again, we have a, a, a pretty small team, um, but 
All of our practice is driven by my supervisor, Dr. Schillingsberg. Um, the main thing that we've been uh, working towards for the past um, year or more is working with clinical and educational leaders across our, our children's services sites so that whether that is in um, educational services, so in our schools, our residences, or our, our center-based programs to develop um, and identify clinical standards of practice um, that touch different aspects of service delivery. So for example, when we get a new um, learner into our program, um, what do our assessment processes look like? Um, how do we develop goals and how are they reflected in our, our treatment plans? Um, and what aspects of clinical care are really important for us to see um, in those processes. So we develop um, those standards of practice and then identify what tools and resources are needed to adhere to those standards um, in practice. Um, so that's the major focus um, and a lot of trainings and tools come along with that approach. Um, and one of the areas that uh, I feel like I've been pretty passionate about in terms of our um, clinical standards is um, ensuring that different aspects of our process touch on uh, client assent uh, to education entry. Yeah, you and I briefly talked through assent yesterday. Uh, I, I would be curious, like what for, for, for listeners who may not have as much context on, on what assent is, like what does that mean? Let's say, let's say a new BCBA is listening into this conversation. Like what is assent and why does that matter to us as behavior analysts, or why should it matter to us as behavior analysts? That's a that's a good question, and I, I think you know, ascent is defined in a, a variety of ways. Uh, the way I tend to put it, um, you know, in my own words to people is that client assent is essentially a way a learner can tell us I'm okay with the way you're treating or teaching me, um, which I think we can contrast with dissent. Um, which again, by contrast, is a client's way of saying, I'm not okay with the way you're treating or teaching me. Um, and I think when we view it that way, um, I think the importance is, is pretty clear. I think um, incorporating, caring about, asking about client assent is a really compassionate practice. Um, I think it's an opportunity for us to acknowledge that the learners we serve, they they care how other people treat them. They have a lot of thoughts and feelings about how they're treated. It's a chance to support them in expressing those feelings. Um, and it's a chance to start empowering them to be more involved in making decisions about their own care um, so that we can ensure we are teaching and treating the learners we serve in ways that they're okay with. I think it also moves away from more of a compliance-based approach where I think historically, um, you know, when we've talked about, well, you know, the, the individual or the student or child that we're working with doesn't like what we're doing. So they're trying to escape. And so we should use escape extinction. And I think, you know, in some of the pieces that you and I have talked about, like that's a very molecular view of what's happening in the moment. There's, you really need to consider why the child is trying to get out of the work and what other things that we're doing in order to build that rapport and get the student engaged or the individual engaged in what we're doing. We're not suggesting with assent-based learning that if a child is engaging in dangerous behaviors or they choose not to do you know, the things that kids are supposed to do, go to school or do different things, that you just let them out of it completely. And that's the other piece that we struggle with is we, we have a family-centered, compassionate approach to teaching, but it doesn't mean 
we allow our clients to sit around. And I think there was an article uh, decades ago, you know, the right to sit around and eat donuts or something along, along the lines of that. That's not what we're suggesting either, that we're suggesting an approach where it's back and forth and that we're engaging the learner and not using, you know, three-step or physical prompting in order to get the individual to continuously comply to what we're asking them to do. Yeah. You know, I think there's a lot of misconceptions perhaps uh, regarding what Ascent is. So at ABAI, I was, I was in one of the, where was I? I was like downstairs and there must've just been an Ascent presentation. And uh, there were a couple behavior analysts that left that presentation and there was a very strong emotional reaction to what was shared in that presentation. And this, is, this incredibly experienced behavior analyst, uh, I, I happened to I happened to have, have the opportunity to talk, talk with her. You know, I was introduced to her and it was a really helpful conversation. And, uh, and it really got my, like, it really got me thinking. I'm not saying she had misconceptions regarding what Ascent is and, and how it plays out. But I just think that this is an area where we, we could provide a lot more clarity on what we mean by Ascent and, uh, and how in many ways it's, 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 it's certainly a more compassionate and kind direction to move in, in terms of how we're working through challenging behavior and, and also being good behavior analysts, like we're, we're analysts, right? So to the extent that we can be, we can be analyzing what's happening moment to moment and, and yes, looking at our data, um, but part of that should be like, how are our learners responding and, and what's their reaction to what we're doing? And, and so I, I certainly appreciate this emphasis on ensuring that our practices are really considering the learner's reaction to what we're doing and whether or not they're okay with what we're doing. Um, and that certainly doesn't mean that we're just letting them do whatever they want all day, right? Like we're still trying to empower them and teach them, but it's, it's got like a, it's got a different focus, it seems. I, I agree with that. I think um, one of the things that, you know, we talk a lot about um, in our program is that uh, when you teach or treat with Ascent, what you're actually doing is adopting an ongoing process. It's not a one and done thing. You're not just asking learners, are you willing to participate in treatment or education or not? Um, we assume that sometimes the answer is yes and sometimes the answer is no. What we're doing is trying to build a partnership with learners and with any partnership, you expect that sometimes the answer is going to be no. There's going to be disagreements. Sometimes learners are not going to assent to instruction. It's not whether there are disagreements that matters. It's what we do when we see disagreements. And so I think one aspect of um, respecting assent that's really important is ensuring that when we approach um, assent with a learner we serve, we're using, we're doing it within the context of an ongoing process. Um, and I don't know if that makes sense, but I guess, which is driven by um, an ultimate goal of, you know, we want learners to enjoy learning. We want them to enjoy the treatment we have to offer. And so we're going to continually work on offering things that we think learners would assent to. Um, and when they don't, we're going to start self-reflecting and identifying, as you said, as behavior analysts, why didn't they enjoy it? Is there anything that we could do better um, to ensure we gain assent? Um, in the future. And if we have invested in that time to build engagement and to, you know, pair yourself or to ensure that the learner will respond to you, because the other piece of it too, 
is I think we can look at it again at a very molecular level in this situation here and now. And some of the things that you hear is, you know, when a client comes to a center, you start with two weeks of pairing. Well, the, a pairing process isn't, like Robin said, one and done. You think about any other relationship that you have with any individual and you say, so only the positive reinforcers in the beginning and then they'll comply and do the things that you ask them to do. That happens in no other relationship. You know, if we think about um, learning and neurotypically developing children in schools, it's the same thing. And it's interesting. I think a lot of what we've done, I mean, reinforcement is very strong. It teaches, you know, it can, it maintains and increases behavior. And we have a lot of in our tool bag, however you may call it with our procedures, they're very effective in teaching new behaviors. But when we think about the long term and really what we're trying to teach is learning to learn, there's a difference between teaching that skill here and now versus that commitment to the individual to continue to learn more complex skills over time. Yeah, uh, I was, I was, uh, as you were sharing your your comments there, Ivy. I thought of uh, it, it, at Morocco, we do this training on uh, based on Robert Schramm's article on building instructional control, and uh, and and we, I love that article, and not to knock it, um, we we now have called it building instructional awesomeness because that word control, you know, now is like it sort of it it, connota- it communicates something that it's like oh we, we're gonna we call this building instructional awesomeness. And so the steps in, in, in there, it's like we, we cover with our team, at least, uh, that this is not this is not a this is not an investment that you make one time. And then you're like, oh, good. Like, I've got great rapport with my learner. So I never have to do that again. It's like, no, no, this is like a this is a regular part of how you do what you do. Uh, and it's a really critical part. Like if you want to make any progress and you want to establish that that trusting relationship, it's it's an investment that requires uh, continual investment, right? And part of, I think one of his steps is you have to, you have to be really good at like learning who your learner is, right? And I, th- I think that article is written for families, but it's like, you you have to like master who they are in a sense, and you have to pay attention to their preferences and you have to show them that you're mindful of those preferences. And so uh, as you were talking, Ivy, it just reminded me of that, of that article. And I think it becomes more complex, especially with individuals that might not be able to express themselves vocal verbally, um, have limited ways to communicate. And you really need to be sensitive to their affect and their emotional response. And again, I'm not suggesting that um, you know we let the individuals we work with do anything they want if they're upset, but there's something else going on that it's our job to dig deeper and figure out what is eliciting the negative emotion and the responding, you know, and and with anyone else, with any other individuals, and this applies really to your employees, to relationships at work in while you're working and outside of work as well. It's critical to understand beyond what's happening in the moment. And, you know, some of the discussions, Robbie, that we've had in the past is just talking about, you know, the approach and when individuals engage in dangerous behaviors and that type of thing, oftentimes, there's a whole history of things that they're not able to tell us and we don't know about, um, you know, and trauma as well that we might not know about. And now, you know, the question in our discipline is ABA or not, is ABA abusive? It's like ABA in and of itself is not, it's a powerful science, but who uses it, how, what your interpretation is and the procedures you select do have an impact. And 
while a lot of the procedures are effective, it doesn't mean you would necessarily use them. There are a lot of things that we can do, but it doesn't mean you do it. Yeah, that's that's right. That's exactly right. Like just because it's effective, I mean, you know, we're we're having certain conversations. You know, this this all started. This miniseries started because of the 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 controversies, you know, surrounding ABAI and the electroshock presentation or presentations. And uh, and it's it's not surprising to me that electroshock is effective, right? But that doesn't mean that we should use it. So I, I absolutely agree. And and I think that uh, I think that those are good conversations to have where we sort of like regain our heart in terms of just being as compassionate as we can be and as kind as we can be in terms of selecting and using the approaches that that we determine, you know, that, that we want to use. And I, I think it's incredibly important for the survival of our field. Now you could argue all day, every day that our field is thriving. We have the, if you, if you look at the, the numbers of certificates and, you know, RBTs, it's like, yeah, those are all, it, those, those numbers are increasing significantly. However, there's a tremendous amount of anti-ABA rhetoric. There's a tremendous amount of ABA misinformation. And there are many, many critics of, and, and, and opponents of what we do and how we do it. Uh, before this, before this conversation, I stumbled across an article on uh, uh, that uh, that autistic mama wrote. And by the way, like I appreciate when people write these things because it's it gives us the things that we need to be. We need to be. It's like these are the these are the issues that we have to address, right? And, and so they're 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 outlining them for us. And uh, you know, in reviewing those, in reviewing those things, you just realize that there's a tremendous amount of opposition to what we do. And I think that if if we if we as a as a as a field move towards this move, you know, continually move in this direction of being more compassionate and kind, however you define that, uh, I think that a lot of these, a lot of the anti-ABA rhetoric and misinformation that exists could very likely be very likely be addressed. Uh, so I, I, I appreciate that we're having this conversation in this context because it's incredibly important. And I think that uh, there are many families who are just choosing not to receive ABA services, which by the way, is really unfortunate for their kids because we know how life-changing it can be for a family and for their kids to receive treatment. And so it's, I think these are important conversations to, to have. Absolutely. And I, I mean, I think in looking at it as well, the other piece of it is just the access to care and, you know, beyond the effectiveness of the science and what behavior analysis can do for what it's worth, the growth in the exponential growth in the last decade has really been due in large part to insurance regulation and funding being available to fund it. Hence, you know, the view of ABA being a treatment for autism. But when you think about get back to the roots of the science. It is not a treatment for autism. It is something that we can, it's a science we can use to modify the environment to produce the behaviors that we want to see, right? We rearrange, you know, I, I know people that talk about it and refer to them themselves as behavior architects, particularly when you go into OBM and talking about, you know, modifying the environment to produce uh, different work ethics in, in, in your employees, individuals, and teams. Um, there's the potential that we can make a lot of systemic change and some of the pieces we can control and some of them we can't, you know, but I don't think we can say, well, we can't control that. So we're washing our hands of it. I think we need to explore the pieces that we can contribute to, to get to a point where we're talking about um, it as a meaningful science, as opposed to whether you should do it or not.
Robin, you and I had a chance to connect yesterday uh, regarding the, these, you know, projects that you're working on. And uh, one thing that struck me was that a lot of this is just like culture change, right? Like there's there's a lot of culture change and 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 systems level change that needs to occur in organizations in order to in order to move in a direction that's perhaps you know, we're kind and compassionate, like we've been talking about. So can y'all walk me through, I know Ivy is like an incredible systems thinker, um, but can y'all walk us through like what it's looked like at the Bay Institute to move from, you know, maybe practices that uh, at this point you'd say, well, we want to, we want to, we want to do things differently. Like, what does that look like for an organization like the Bay Institute to, 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 to have that culture change and to, and to really like blaze a new trail in the organization to get to a point where the, the, the approaches that we're using are more sustainable. And when I mean sustainable, I mean like, you know, if, if the anti-ABA critics were looking at what we were doing, they'd say, yeah, that's good. That's good work right there. Like that's, when I say sustainable, like that's what I want. I want our, I want our, our, our most uh, vocal critics to look at what we're doing and say, yeah, that's, that's actually really, that's, that's high quality treatment right there. So I'd love to learn more about how y'all are doing that at the systems level and what it looks like at the, at the center level and, and all of that. I can chime in. I, I think Ivy can say way more than me um, on on this area. But um, from my end and my perspective, I think one of the first and, and most critical things we have to do is figure out, well, what direction are we trying to head? Um, and then backwards design the process from there. And so um, a lot of, again, what, what we've been um, focused on and the last uh, year or more is, is figuring that out, is what does, you know, compassionate, evidence-based practice look like um, in different areas. Um, and let's make sure we have ways of measuring the extent to which we're already there um, and the gaps that exist so we can start um, identifying what's needed to close those gaps from our values to practice. And from a systemic level, I think, you know, really is starting that discussion about, you know, it's so critical. We can identify the mission and where we're going, you know, what impact do we want to make? And it's on both sides. It's not just the individuals we work with, but with our employees and teams and staff as well. Um, you know, one of our slogans at May, and it's, you know, we, we, we go by, we are one May, we're all one team. And it's hard to feel that way sometimes when you're across multiple regions, multiple service lines, um, in different states, different approaches and disciplines, because May really has an interdisciplinary team is aligning that we're all together working towards making an impact for the individuals and families that we serve. And once you can determine that we're on the same page and aligned, we may not be aligned necessarily on the way to get there, but that's where the work comes in is the buy-in. And I think it's easy to get someone to buy into compassionate care and buy into, we want our individuals and you know what we say is happy, relaxed, and engaged. And of course, everyone wants that, but then, at the systems level, how are we arranging the environment for employees to support that? It's a change in workflow and process. It's a change in approach. You build in inequity and access and cultural differences and diversity and education and background. I mean, a, a, a number of these things is really figuring out how to work. We have a very diverse work field, uh, workplace and organization. And for what it's worth, different cultures have different ways of child rearing and approaches to learning. But 
everyone is headed in the right direction. They're here because they want to make a difference and they care about the individuals they work with. And so, like Robin said, it's working backwards from that, but having the infrastructure and the support, and it starts at the top. It needs to be aligned at the organizational, at the division and programmatic level, as well as the individuals, meaning our employees in this case, delivering the care to the patients, students, and adults we work with. Right. So I have questions regarding like ascent as an example. If we use that as one like as one case study, if you will, for for an organizational initiative where where we want our clinicians to uh, you know to be very mindful of ascent, and so perhaps they've been trained a certain way. Like you know, everyone comes to us, and what I mean us, I mean like organizations, behavior analysts, and and RBTs, they come to organizations with different learning histories. Perhaps they've, perhaps they're really experienced and they've been doing things for a really long time. And they have, you know, they have, uh, they have an idea as to how treatment should unfold and, and what that looks like. So when you, when you think of an issue like ascent, how do you, like, how do you get your clinicians to move in this new direction where now they're, they're more mindful of ascent in their treatment? Let's say they've been practicing for 30 years and they say, well, Look, I've been doing this for a long time and every every single time that that I've worked through a challenging behavior and right in, in like, you know, again, these these emotional like reactions, challenging behavior, potentially like really traumatic experiences for learners. Right. Uh, but then you've got behavior analysts who are like, well, we've been doing this for years and this is how we've always done it. Like, how do you get that person to to, to just pause? Right. To stop and then at least consider consider this new direction that we're trying to go in. So I would love to know, like, how, how have y'all done this? Like, I have a small team. I'm not a May Institute level, you know, uh, we're not we're not at that level in terms of our organization. So for us, it's relatively easy to do, you know, to, to make these types of changes. But I would love to know how y'all have navigated that. I'm going to defer to Robin, because I think that's a great question. Um, I think, you know, uh, Sometimes when you look at it, we can say probably it's simple, sort of, but it's not easy. And I'm going to hand it to her. Um, yeah, I, I agree. Um, and I think that's a great question. Um, I do currently work with um, several teams who are uh, saying, I'm, I'm curious about this approach to teaching or treating with a SIM, but I, I'm not sure I buy in. Can you tell me more? And I think, you know, as, as you and RV stated earlier, it starts with developing a shared, a shared mission. And I think we already have one. I mean, I think every team I've worked with already comes to the table saying, yes, of course, my goal is to treat the learners I serve in ways that they're okay with. Um, but I think when we then dig down deeper and start looking at, okay, now let's talk about our current systems and practices. What are we currently doing to ask if they're okay with the ways we're treating and teaching them? Then we start, um, I think, breaking down some barriers to communication, break, getting some more information about what our values look like in practice and steering the conversation away from particular procedures to more of how are our current practices reflecting the values we both agree on? Um, and oftentimes I hear, well, I, we, we don't. I guess we observe, but we don't really have a formal system of asking. And I think 
when we start with uh, making it simple, uh, making the steps towards adopting this approach simple, uh, making it clear the link between our values and the reasons why we're getting started and saying, okay, so why don't we just start by talking about how do we ask? How can we ask um, the learner if they're okay with the ways we're treating or teaching them? I think um, that goes a long way towards helping us uh, get started um, because I think otherwise we tend to focus more on the fear of what if we don't get a cent? And that's when we start talking about our current practices and, and how what we might do in that case differs from what we um, would typically tend to do. And so, um, again, I think that's a nice place to start. I don't know if that makes sense or let me know if I can elaborate on anything. I have a question. Is all challenging behavior? So let's say that we're working with a learner in the center and they, they, you know, they start engaging in challenging behavior. Is that a point at which behavior analysts and, and RBTs should, should stop and consider whether or not they have a scent to continue with whatever it is that they're doing? Like, is that a moment for us to just like, to stop and, and, and be really like self-reflective as to what we did and what's happening, considering the context and what's at work and then determine how to proceed? I don't I know it's necessary. Sorry, go ahead, go ahead. Okay, I was just going to say, I don't know that that's necessarily the exact second to do that. I like to talk about it as a post-mortem when you're outside of the crisis situation. Um, I don't know if that's what you were meaning to ask, like once it's occurred. Um, you know, and of course, in centers and clinics is of just a very small part of the work we do. The much bigger part is the students we serve in our private schools and the adults in our day programs and our residential programs as well. Um, and so in that situation, depending on the level of problem behavior, what's happening, I mean, first, it's safety first for both the individual and the employees involved. But definitely at that point, if, you know, if it's happened more than once, we would go back and look at beyond that particular situation, what we're doing, if there's skills deficits, if um, it's a lack of motivation and examine those pieces and see what we can do to modify it. But Oftentimes it's not in the moment. I'm going to hand it to Robin from here. Um, I think, and as Ivy just said too, we, we're a big organization. Um, I've worked directly with our children's services departments. Um, and so there's different practices in different areas. So I don't want to speak for everyone. Um, but I think that um, when I've had conversations with teams about, you know, how do we start teaching with ascent? How do we get that off the ground? One of the points of confusion that I feel like we inevitably come across is, well, what constitutes treatment and, and what it is outside the context of treatment? And so um, typically when teams start saying, okay, we want to start uh, emphasizing ascent in our practice, my typical recommendation is, okay, let's talk about what time you have set aside for treatment. And so problem behavior that happens outside of those sessions, if what we're doing in that moment is more behavior management, as opposed to an actual behavioral intervention that we have pre-planned um, and set aside time for, I, I think we got to treat those things separately. However, I will say that regardless of whether you're in or out of a treatment context, if um, you know, you're working with a learner who you know, their problem behavior is an early sign that they're headed down the path towards hurting themselves or hurting others, I think that we are, you know, adopting a similar approach, whether we call it ascent or not, and that we emphasize first and foremost, what can I do in this moment to help keep everybody safe? 
And what can I do in this moment to ensure I maintain a positive, supporting, trusting relationship with this learner? Uh, we may or may not call it, you know, respecting assent because we haven't offered a treatment in that moment, but we may treat it very similarly. Yeah, right. And it, this reminds me of, uh, I've, I think I've heard Dr. Hanley say that, you know, gone are the days where you get like, it's like a badge of honor to work through challenging behavior. It's almost like, you know, I started 20 years ago. And back when I started, you, you know, you persisted with the demand and you, you utilize procedures like escape extinction and you just, you did what you could to work through the challenging behavior. And I would argue, I, I very likely did it as kindly as I could have. However, it's almost like, you know, 20 years ago, you expected challenging behavior to occur. And now while we still might expect that to occur, we, we want to be more thoughtful as to why it's happening. So it's almost like for, for a behavior analyst, and this is like how my team does it. When we have an episode of challenging behavior in the center, it's, 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 it's not uncommon for us to like debrief and do a retrospective meeting as to like, Hey, what was happening there? And so like, I'm not going to say that it happens every single time, but I, but I, I think it might in many cases where when we have an episode of challenging behavior, either in the moment or after the session, we're just like, we're working it out together and we're trying to learn from it. Cause that's the thing that we want to do. Like we want to, we want to learn from that, from that learner. Like they're teaching us just as much as we're teaching them, if not more. So I think we're just trying to be good learners and good analysts in those moments and, and after the session. So I think that's what y'all are saying uh, on a high level. Yeah, I, I think, I think certainly, um, I think too, one of the things for me that I've learned over the last few years that personally has been, um, a shift in, in my practice is that, you know, I've also, you know, full disclaimer, I mean, I've, I've implemented escape extinction, three-step prompting, all of those, those procedures, um, that, that you just mentioned as, as well as, as part of my history. Um, I think coming into a setting when I first started at, at the May Institute, I, I started as a clinical director. So I had a caseload um, that I served of, of students um, who many of whom engaged in some pretty dangerous, challenging behavior um, in my practice historically has been for those individuals. You might do a functional assessment and then write um, a behavior support plan um, for addressing that challenging behavior throughout the day. And I think one thing that I've learned over time is that in my past, I think I used to confuse in some ways behavioral treatment versus behavioral management throughout the day. And so, you know, when we see problem behavior um, throughout the day outside of a planned period of intervention, the question is, how do we respond and why? So if we're implementing extinction in that moment, is that, or if, even if we're prompting communication, are we doing that because that's a treatment for the challenging behavior or why else? It's usually because it's a treatment for the challenging behavior. And so it's, it's a matter of how do we treat? Are we treating all day across every situation this learner is going to experience? Or are we treating in carefully pre-planned instructional moments as we would treat any other skill deficit that we recognize for a learner? Um, and so I think for me, it's been, uh, I'm saying a lot, I think it's a matter of distinguishing between when am I implementing behavioral treatment? Because I should probably have a plan for that. 
um, and in advance? Um, and when am I simply managing behavior because I recognize that this learner um, hasn't learned the skills that they need to overcome their challenging behavior um, across their day? And so it's a matter of distinguishing between those two things. Um, what you do in treatment when you have a plan for doing it safely um, and doing it in a supportive way with the learner's assent, I think is a little different from what you do outside of treatment when you don't have necessarily a plan for how to treat safely. You don't understand, as you said, all of the controlling variables for problem behavior in that moment. And you haven't asked a learner for assent because you didn't expect the problem behavior to even occur. Um, so for me, that's been a big shift um, in practice is kind of compartmentalizing those two things as separate. Uh, Ivy, I, I have a question for, for you, and I'm not sure to, I'm not sure if you can answer this question, but to what extent? So you know we've learned we've learned a lot more regarding how y'all are doing things at the May Institute and uh, these like initiatives that you're you're tackling together as a team uh, across your service lines uh, in in the spirit of moving towards a more compassionate and kind uh, you know treatment approach. So to what extent does this not work for your learners? And you have to refer student, you know, you have to refer out because what, what y'all are building isn't successful or isn't effective in treating the individuals that you're entrusted to serve. Like, I would love to know, uh, I would love to know if what y'all are doing without, without these, you know, punitive approaches and, I would love to know if what y'all are doing is effective in serving the learners that you have under your care. So I think the answer there, there's not one straight answer because again, we have different service lines and different funders, which makes a big difference because when you're talking about clinic-based, center-based, uh, using medical insurance and medical necessity, that's one type of learner. And then we have our private schools, which is education, tuition-based and the goals are slightly different, right? It's IEP-based versus IEP-based, you know, accessing the curriculum and being in the school versus ameliorating the symptoms of autism, you know, however you might want to define that when we talk about medical necessity. And then, of course, our adult support services, vocational as well. So each of those, you know, while all of them converge in the sense that we're hoping to make an impact, teach new skills and affect the quality of life, the day-to-day -day of what you do and how you approach it may be slightly different, even though you're using behavior analysis. And so I wanna address your question of what happens when we can't serve a particular individual due to, I'm assuming you're saying that either the severity of the challenging behavior, so safely, or they may not be learning in the environment that we have, so the ratio we're able to provide. And occasionally that happens, occasionally it happens in our clinics and it happens in our schools and it quite frankly happens in our residential program as well. And we do need to make that determination of whether it's a good fit based on our funding model. And of course, like any other behavior analyst, no one gets into this to say they can't do it, right? We, we all believe in our science and we know that it works. However, there are parameters around what we can do and what we're funded for. And that includes ratios of staff or approach to teaching what we can safely do in the location that we're in. And so we're not a hospital unit. We're not an inpatient unit. We have residential programs and group homes, but the ratios are what they are. Occasionally, 
for some of the individuals we serve, they have a one-to-one ratio. Um, so they might have an individual assigned to them. And some of them, 24 hours, even sleep hours, they might have a one-to-one. But we all know, especially those of us that have worked in challenging behavior, some of the individuals we work with, when it comes to a safety hold, so we use safety care, and you only use it when there's imminent uh, risk, harm, danger to the individual or the employees or, or peers around, um, but in any other situation, you can't use restraint or punishment simply because you want the person to do something that you want them to do or they're non-compliant. Um, and for some individuals, they engage in the severity upon behavior where they hurt themselves and they hurt others. Um, and our crisis procedure, for what it's worth, is to call 911 because we can't put hands on a child and hold them down if they're not causing that imminent risk of health and, and safety issues. And so from there, it may not necessarily be that we refer out per se, but then it's a conversation with the district or the IEP team in the case of a student or the, you know, the, the treatment team in the case of the clinics and centers of what the child needs, whether the intensity of the supports the individual needs is what we can provide and whether we need to find an alternative placement. And no one wants to do that. We all want to help the individuals we serve, but quite frankly, we're not a hospital site. There are medications and complexities and a number of contextual variables. And when we get to the point where the supports that we have or that we can provide are not conducive to seeing the changes that are necessary, that's where the team needs to come together and discuss how to make that work. And oftentimes, sometimes the meeting becomes, we say, we need these types of supports. And the funder is saying, well, you've got what you got. We're not going to give any more supports. We're not giving another one-to-one or we're not giving you more hours. And that's where the discussion is. Can we safely manage and teach this individual and give them quality treatment or is this out of our hands and they need a higher level of care? Yeah, that's that's helpful to have the overview. It's not unlike uh, when my, in my last job before I went into private practice, I was an administrator and it's like working through the working through like the continuum of placements and just understanding, you know, to what extent can you meet the needs of the students in, in that placement and in that setting. And so um, I think it's helpful for, for me at least, and hopefully for the listeners to understand how y'all kind of work through those, those situations where the learners are not making progress or, or treatment is, is otherwise like not as effective as, as you're hoping it, it, it would have been. So that's and helpful. Our, and our job is to make that impact and, you know, that brings us back to the systems of care and, and, you know, some of the discussions that we've had on social determinants and socioeconomic status and how our healthcare systems work, how they're highly variable, even for medical conditions like hip replacement and heart disease. And we're talking about autism where it's a relatively new field in the last decade and a half where there's funding and support. And quite frankly, the payers are dictating in a different way than they are for other medical conditions. And our hands are tied in a lot of ways. And so we can do what we can do in the moment, but I think there's so much more to be done in advocacy and affecting systems level change in behavior analysis. And we need to look at that as a discipline as well. Yeah, I agree. We talked a lot about this, if I recall correctly, in the panel that we had. That was a, that was a focus of, of the... Uh, I think you you brought these concerns up in that in that setting as well. So I agree. 
Uh, Robin, Ivy, is there anything else that y'all would like to share? Um, I want to be sensitive to your to your time and your schedule. So, and I certainly appreciate uh, getting to getting to have this conversation with you. But is there anything else that y'all would like to to share before we we wrap up this interview? I think I just want to say, you know, really appreciate this opportunity to talk about our approach. Um, we know where we want to go. We're not there yet. I think we're constantly going to be striving to make and affect some of these changes. We're always going to be working with our teams um, and learning from our own, you know, mistakes. A lot of this is trial and error and just figuring it out. And, you know, as teams change and we're in the pandemic and all these things happening, you know, keeps you humble to know that we're all trying to move in the same direction and that we're having these discussions now. Wait, y'all make mistakes? Absolutely. We're all learning. Yeah. Robin, anything else, uh, anything else you want to share with, uh, with everyone? Um, I mean, I, I think Ivy summed it up really well. Um, I, I just, want to say in my experience, you know, working with our organization time and time again, I know that everybody I, I work with um, shares the same values. Um, and we all put the learners that we serve and their families first. Um, and sometimes it's just a matter of blazing the trail um, and overcoming barriers and obstacles to the path that we're headed down. Um, and so, um, you know, I think Again, I can't add much to what Ivy already said, um, except that I, I do, I am really grateful to see that um, as, from my perspective, um, at our organization and in our field, I, I do think we're starting with a pretty clear and solid um, shared mission. Um, and it's just a matter of opening up the lines of communication that we need to identify our barriers to getting there um, and work together to problem solve um, along the way. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. And I appreciate the approach that y'all are taking in terms of, uh, of just integrating more of these ap approaches and practices that are going to be more sustainable, uh, for us, for us as a field and are significantly more just respectful of the dignity of those that we're entrusted to serve. And so I, and I can appreciate that y'all are really transparent. It's like you're, you know, you're, you're, you're building things and you're making mistakes. I tell my team all the time that, you know, cause we spent a significant amount of time building infrastructure before we even opened a center. And, uh, and so I tell my team, it's like, it's a masterpiece, but it's still a work in progress. Like we're constantly changing things and making things better. Uh, there's so many, there's so many problems to fix all the time, but, uh, but that's our jobs. And, uh, and I certainly enjoy doing it. So, Robin, Ivy, I really appreciate y'all taking time to talk. And uh, this was this was incredibly insightful for me and I learned a lot. So I just, I want you to know how much I appreciate you sharing your experience with everyone. It's, it's amazing. And um, the May Institute is a, just a top place to practice behavior analysis. And so it's, it's wonderful for us to be able to learn from what y'all are doing. Thank you so much. We really appreciate your time.